Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the PQI podcast. We are excited to bring you our first podcast with continuing education credit for pharmacists and pharmacy technicians. This week, we sit down with Dr. Tara Higgins to discuss pediatric oncology. Dr. Higgins serves as an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at LeeCom School of Pharmacy in Bradenton, Florida. You can find the CE registration link for this podcast in the show notes and be sure to listen for the CE code at the end of the podcast. The objectives of today's podcast are to identify the differences between adult and pediatric oncology, to summarize the role of the pharmacist and pharmacy technician in pediatric oncology, and to recognize the challenges when treating pediatric patients with cancer. So thank you so much, Dr. Higgins, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. I am so excited that you are guest number one for our CE podcast episodes. Um, But to start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell us about your background and your current role? And then also for the sake of the CE, will you give any relevant disclosures you may have? I'm Terry Higgins, and um, my background is I did my College of Pharmacy at the University of Rhode Island, did two years of pharmacy residency specializing in pediatrics, and found my home within pediatrics and pediatric heme onc and BMT, where I practiced for about 13 years at a couple of different hospitals within Florida. I am now an assistant professor at LeeCom or Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine School of Pharmacy at the Bradenton, Florida campus. And for my disclosures, my only disclosure is I am a consultant for LexiComp. Okay, thank you. Awesome. And that is a great place to live. I will say Anna Maria Island, which is really close to you, is one of my favorite places ever. We go every summer. Um, and then also pediatric oncology, just my, my hat off, off to you because it's, I couldn't do it. It's, it's heart-wrenching, so I'm glad someone is, though. <laughs> Um, So to start now on our actual discussion on pediatric oncology, how does treatment of pediatric patients with cancer differ from adults? So first little colloquialism I always like to bring up is that pediatric patients are not small adults. Um, So you will learn probably in pharmacy school as well as through practice is that there's lots of pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic differences between different age groups within pediatrics as well as the differences within pediatrics to adults. But um, pediatrics within oncology actually experience um, usually a number of different cancer types that aren't seen in adults. Um, especially within the solid tumor range. So there's cancers like retinoblastoma or neuroblastoma, which are predominantly usually in um, smaller infants or younger children and very rarely seen in older um, adolescents, adults, et cetera. Um, Even when the cancers are the same, such as acute leukemia, which is a very predominant cancer within pediatrics, ALL, it acts differently in children than it does in adults. So there's usually different cytogenetics that are seen. Um, Treatment regimens are different and that's come to play, especially within ALL because young adults have have become a question within ALL um, treatment is should they be treated like an adult or should they be treated like a child? And there's actually been a few different studies that have come out saying that young adults should actually be treated on pediatric um, trials or studies because they've seen that they have a better outcome with those. Um, Probably because they're a little closer to 
ch child or pediatric pharmacokinetics in comparison to older adults. So they handle the chemotherapy better. Um, thus, they have had a better outcome with the pediatric style regimens. But the flip side to that is pediatric regimens are pretty complex generally. So it becomes a little difficult sometimes for um, adult practitioners to who aren't used to seeing these very in-depth protocols that have roadmaps that are miles long <laughs> and trying to keep track of that. So um, that's become the debate of where should these young adults be treated in a pediatric center versus an adult center. The other big aspect is that children usually have more DNA changes causing their cancers in comparison to lifestyle or environmental risk factors. The classic example I always think of is like an adult's lung cancer, you think of cigarette smoking right away as being one of the reasons where most of the time in children, it's not anything that they specifically did or their families did. It's something that just randomly happened. Oh, and finally, the other thing is they also adults, um, Unfortunately, they have more cancer than pediatric patients and just because of the pure number of adults in comparison to children. Um, but we do see that there's a lot fewer um, research dollars being given, especially from the national standpoint, such as the NCI, given towards ch childhood cancer. So yes, there may be less patients, but if we help prevent those patients from, um, or help prevent cancer occurring or getting better treatments that prevent the life, the lifelong side effects down the line, we might see that we have hopefully less issues for children as they become adults because a lot of the secondary cancers in adults are because of what we did during childhood cancer treatment. Huh. That's really interesting. Uh, the last one about the, the childhood research dollars, just because I would think, you know, as a mom, I would, I would much rather give my daughter, my dollars. That's terrible to say to, ch yeah. to childhood cancer. So anyway, just an interest, interesting fact there. Um, and then what are the biggest challenges when treating pediatric oncology patients? So kind of going along with number one is that the, um, broad age range. So we're thinking it can be anywhere from a few days of life old sometimes to an 18 year old, right? So <laughs> a pretty large um, age range. And within that age range, we're gonna see lots of changes within their pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic um, abilities to process drugs. And unfortunately, we, we have some good legislature out there saying that we need more research in children. It's just maybe fortunate or unfortunately, we don't have the number of patients to get those studies done in a quick time span a lot of the times. Um, so we see that new drugs come out for adults and it's quite some time before that trickles down to pediatric care. Um, so we may have some slow going of gaining some of these newer agents that we're seeing in the adult world right now, such as TKIs or immunotherapy. Um, but we do see that we see have some drugs that maybe first started out within pediatric care, such as cisogen like Lucil for, um, for Kimraya. Um, let's see, patients may not be able to talk to you or, or, or you might not be able to rely on family information either. So that's another big challenge within pediatric oncology is just because you have that younger age range is that, you know, if they came in and they were very sick and maybe the parents um, were not exactly with them at the time when it was some, when something occurred. It might it's 
take some time to be able to piece together what exactly the background is of what is happening to that patient. Or say they were adopted or um, are in a welfare situation where they aren't in their actual original parent's home. Sometimes it's hard to determine what maybe the backgrounds were to figure out um, just genetic history of that patient. And then family history. So sometimes it's because you're not just having the child, you also have the family background. And sometimes there's some social situations that can be difficult of navigation. So we work very closely with social work of trying to help navigate sometimes sticky, maybe um, parental situations that could be in place sometimes. And then we also, um, outside of social situations, we also have the maybe luxury of having child life specialists who also work in our area, who help keep those children calm while we're trying to do some of those procedures that maybe need to be done, such as IV placements or um, intramuscular injections or something like that along those lines. So things that from a pharmacist standpoint, we need done because we need the therapy to be given. It's great to have some of those other ancillary services around to help us with that process. Yes, for sure. That the helpers are a blessing. Um, and then why is treatment and outcomes of the same cancer different in pediatrics than adults? Yeah. So kind of going back to my ALL example, that's my favorite example to bring up just because um, it's common in, in both areas, children and adults, but we don't give the same treatment to them. Children definitely tolerate chemotherapy side effects better than adults. If you go to, uh, it's been a long time since I've been on an adult ward, but <laughs> in oncology, but back then when I was in PGY1 resident, I remember, you know, everybody's in bed, they look very sick, but you go to a pediatric ward and yes, I know you mentioned that, you know, it's it tugs at your heartstrings and I agree. I, it definitely does, but it's de definitely a rewarding practice, um, pediatric oncology, but it's definitely black and white. You either like it or you don't. You know? <laughs> Um, but from that perspective, you go to the wards, yes, you have the children who are bald, and yes, they are skinny and pale, but most of the time they are smiling, they are trying to play. They, I remember many times I'd have kids because my office was right on the floor in one of the um, institutions I worked at, and I'd have them knocking on my door wanting to come color <laughs> with me while I was working, so it's definitely a different environment in comparison. Um, the other big thing is that children generally have a better baseline organ um, function. So going into it, most kids don't have renal failure. Most kids don't have liver failure or anything like that coming into their therapies. They don't, most time this is the only background that they have for past medical history at that point. Um, so that's one blessing for, for these children is that they, they're able to handle that chemotherapy well is because they don't have organ dysfunction that came in at baseline. Um, the cancers, as I mentioned, have different biologies generally. So they you may see different um, cytogenetics that are appearing within the cancers, which makes it sometimes maybe more difficult from the targeted drug therapy because in adults, one drug may work for the same cancer, but it may not work for a pediatric patient and vice versa. The other area that's really helped pediatric cancer um, survival success has been um, our pooling our data. So we have a cooperative group 
trial group called Children's Oncology Group that is nationwide, even international with some um, centers in Canada that all pool our data. So it's in that basically most children's hospitals that take care of pediatric oncology patients will belong to Children's Oncology Group. They have usually about 100 active trials at a time for all different types of pediatric cancers that are recruiting. And so when you think about it, if we did single center studies, we would never know what was going to be a statistically significant data point because for data for a question, because we would it would take, I don't even know, like <laughs> decades and decades before we could get a enough patients to figure that out from a single center study. But pooling all the data from numerous centers, which I think they're up to about close to almost 200 centers at this point, um, it, getting that information to the um, pooling that data gets us information faster because we're able to take in that many more patients and put them all into one multi-center study. Okay, put, working together. Um, so on that note, will you talk a little more about what is the children's oncology group? So maybe maybe expand upon that yeah. a little bit. I know. I, I'm, I keep leading into the next question. Good. I love it. <laughs> Children's Oncology Group, like I mentioned, is the largest pediatric clinical trials cooperative group in the world. It used to be a couple different groups that came together because it was recognized relatively early that more is better for getting our information and getting to the crux of what the um, the question is and being able to answer that question. So I mentioned that we have about 200 hospitals. That's about, that's over about 7,000 providers, nurses, researchers, which pharmacists count as part of that. It is supported by the NCI. So that is where some of our the NCI dollars go to is, is towards Children's Oncology Group. Um, the survival rates have improved. So if we think back in the 1950s, pretty much any childhood cancer diagnosis was a death sentence. Less than 10% of patients survived. Looking forward to now, around the 2000s time span, it's about 80% of children now survive their childhood cancers. And it's really thought to be due to that um, children's oncology group pooling of data and be able to boost our numbers and get answers to these questions and be able to change our therapies relatively quickly and to make a new baseline um, therapy for that disease state. So goals of children's oncology group, Obviously, we want to cure all children's cancer <laughs> and adolescents, because that's part of their group. We want to reduce the short and long-term complications. So like I mentioned, ALL therapy has been the biggest one that has made large breakthroughs. Most children with B-cell ALL have an overall survival of over 90%. And so that's great. But we are now, most of the time, the questions towards those um, new studies coming out are actually trying to reduce the toxicity. So it's trying to in introduce other therapies such as immunotherapy. So blanitumab is a big one that's been in being introduced into a lot of the um, newer trials for B-cell ALL in children. So that's gonna help hopefully reduce those short and long-term complications that these patients are seeing. And then obviously we want to determine the causes and find ways to prevent childhood cancer because all of us would love to be out of a job and be doing yeah. something different than what we're yeah. doing right now if that was if that was a choice. Definitely, I agree. So 
Um, are there any new targeted therapies being utilized in pa pediatrics? I know you touched on some new therapies that are being studied, so we'll continue on that line. Yeah, absolutely. So most commonly right now is leukemia. So especially ALL, just because I, probably the number <laughs> of patients that come along, it makes it easier to study these newer therapies quicker. Um, so blenitumumab right now is for sure being utilized in our relapse ALL, but we are, have been looking at, um, with Children's Oncology Group, um, looking at introducing it sooner and actually putting it in some of the upfront first-line therapies for um, B-cell ALL therapy. Inotuzumab is another one that's also being looked at for the high-risk ALL protocols and seeing if we can use that upfront to maybe reduce um, toxicities long-term and increase our rates of overall survival. And then pH positive ALL has been the other one. So yes, um, imatinib and desatinib have been being utilized for some time with those patients. Um, but the big thing that, for at least that group of patients that we've been looking at is that European groups have actually been utilizing a different um, flow or <laughs> overall composition of their therapy in comparison to the backbone of non-pH positive ALL um, therapy for in the U.S. So they're actually looking at trying to compare those two okay. and see if we use what we would normally use with imatinib for pH positive ALL and then and compare that to what we have been doing, which is the European background with imatinib, which is a lot more toxic. Can we, can we reduce our toxicity and still have good cure rates? So that's another one that's been an interesting trial that's been ongoing. And then serafinib was looked at for AML therapy as um, for FLT3 positive AML, AML patients in the upfront, as well as a maintenance therapy after transplant if patients needed to go to transplant. So those are the big ones, but there's one area that's been very exciting for me, especially because all of us who are in oncology are kind of a little bit of pharmacogenomic geeks, right? We really, we really love to look at the, the genomic alterations and see what we could do to maybe target those and reduce our toxicities. So there is a large trial that's out, that has many, many arms to it. I think they're out to like... I don't know, arm G or H or something like that on the trial. <laughs> um, it's, it looks at over about 10 plus targeted therapies that are were investigated in adult therapy and looking at them in pediatrics. And it's try and basically try anybody can be enrolled in this if they have advanced solid tumors, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or histiocytic disorders with that specific mutation. So if you have any one of those basically not a leukemia <laughs> diagnosis, and you have that um, specific mutation, you can go onto this trial and, and be part of it and receive that therapy. And the great thing is that it, when you have somebody on this trial is that you'll get specific dosage forms that are appropriate to give to these patients. Because unfortunately, yeah. a lot of these oral TKIs or targeted therapies that are out there, they only come in a solid dosage form that most of the time can't be cut, crushed, or <laughs> and you have to swallow it whole. <laughs> That's a, I was just wondering about that because I was thinking all, all of these, you know, we always ask for some, some reason or another, if we can crush them. And the answer is always no. So how yes. do you, how do you go about yes. that? Yeah. 
So a lot of these trials, if they do take, sometimes they only have like for 12 and above, or you have to be able to swallow pills as a stipulation to be part of the pediatric match trial, but through COG. But um, if they don't have that stipulation and they're allowing lower, that means that they have like a specific formulation that they allow, that they are trialing as part of that trial. Very good. Very good. And then will you give us a little more information on why young adults are treated on pediatric protocols? Yeah, so most COG protocols, surprisingly, if you think about it, because everybody thinks, you know, adult 18, over that is, is <laughs> no longer a child or a pediatric patient. But actually, most COG protocols take up to the mid-20s, um, early 30s, so a lot especially like ALL trials, I think their cutoff is usually like 31. Wow. There's even some solid, solid tumor trials that have taken the enrolling up to the forties and fifties age range on them. But I mean, some of us are still children inside, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but at least in the ALL population, that's where a lot of the data has come so far that pediatric style therapy may be more beneficial for those patients than adult style therapy, as I mentioned. Um, but the big problem that comes along with that is that who treats them? Because a lot of the times, if you're a standalone pediatric hospital, usually the cutoff for admission there is going to be, or to be seen there, 21. Once you're over 21, you need to go to an adult hospital. How do you give these patients this therapy? <laughs> if your adult, if your children's hospital within an adult hospital, sometimes you have a little more wiggle room. So one of the hospitals I've worked at in the past, our floor took up to 25, um, but we would be like a consult service on the adult service if for older patients just to keep them enrolling on our studies that took the older age population. But if you're in a pediatric hospital that doesn't have necessarily um the ability to do that with an adult side it's, it's like who treat helps who, who treats them right we get in a little co complex situation because the adult services aren't used to using it they're like roadmaps what what are what is all this information on here what are all these dose reduction strategies that I, i'm not understanding maybe um and it could be that you know what's the closest area around might be not a teaching-based hospital where maybe they've had exposure to this. Maybe it's been a long time since they've seen or ever saw a pediatric oncology patient. So it really gets complex from that standpoint of who treats them and how are, how are they going to treat, treat them appropriately, possibly, because if you're not used to using those protocols, you might not, you may be making dose reductions when you don't need to, or you may not be, you may be or you may miss the dose reduction potentially as an option as well, um, where if you're treating an adult on a pediatric service, yes, you might be using the right therapy, but then you don't have people who are ACLS trained or, yeah. <laughs> or are used to taking care of adult, like <laughs> yeah. other disease states outside of the pediatric cancer. It's a dilemma for sure. I know, <laughs> I know here our children's hospital is part of a, an adult hospital, so... I could see where that would be a great fit, but you're right on, on those that are separate, it would definitely be an issue, an yeah. issue to think about. Um, so in the hospital or in the care center, is the role of a pharmacist the same in pediatric oncology as adult oncology? 
in essence, I talked about, yes, they are pretty similar. So if you're an inpatient pharmacist on pediatric oncology, you're going to have pharmacy, pharmacists on rounds with the team as usual. You're going to field drug information questions. You're going to be probably verifying orders while you're on rounds <laughs> as similar to what an adult does, an adult pharmacist would on an oncology service. So we'd be participating in the chemotherapy ordering process. So that might be assisting providers with putting in the orders. It might be actually doing the verification or the mixing process potentially. Um, and then similar to adults, we would definitely be involved with educating patients and caregivers on the chemotherapy as well as other medications they might be going home on. Similar to if you were an outpatient pharmacist, it's going to be maybe a little bit more limited in aspects for pediatric oncology, just because we are lucky in the aspect we don't have the same numbers as adults for cancer, but the complexity is definitely of the regimen is, in my opinion, probably a little bit more complex than in most adult regimens. So that's where I think things kind of should weigh out but sometimes that doesn't happen. So you might have one pharmacist who's covering inpatient and outpatient in pediatric oncology, or you might have only one inpatient, one outpatient, and not like disease stratified pharmacists like you may have in an adult oncology role. Um, and then in outpatient, you might have potentially a bigger operational role than clinical role sometimes if you are the only person out there. <laughs> Yes. The other thing is that, yes, we may be participating in education of patients and caregivers. It's just, it may look a little different because education <laughs> does include the child, right? So especially if you're an adolescent, I remember very <laughs> being very strong with sometimes the families always wanting to be the mom or dad or like, just tell me everything. And I'm like, your 16-year-old daughter or son also needs to know this information and trying to direct the direct, direct your information to them first and yeah. get them involved early because this is going to be a lifelong thing for them is that knowing what disease state they had and what meds they received, especially if they were receiving anthracyclines or something like that where we need to know their lifetime amounts. Um, and then if you are a child, it isn't still important. So I've educated all the way down to I believe my youngest one was like five years old of just knowing what the names of their drugs were so that they could participate and help mom and dad identify, you know, what drugs I'm supposed to take and when. Yeah. Probably younger than that, it's more just <laughs> tips on getting them to take their medicines appropriately <laughs> because most of the time kids don't want to take oral meds, you know, and what they're going home on is usually some sort of oral medication, maybe not maybe not a cancer medication, but it's other supportive medicines like Bactrim or fluconazole, et cetera. Um, that's where adherence really comes into play is that we really need to support our families who are going to be administering those medications to, so they understand the importance and why they're taking them and good concepts for them to be able to give the medications to the kids so somewhat willingly. <laughs> <laughs> and that not being spit out constantly at them. So giving them tips of, you know, trying to avoid um, the taste buds area of their tongue and get it in their cheeks or um, encouraging flavoring if possible if it, 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 or encouraging use of oral syringes and not, you know, tablespoons, et cetera, at home. So appropriate techniques, et cetera. And then liquid compound medications are the other big thing. So we have, a lot of times we may have 
families you need liquids because you have smaller children, but it's not something that comes in a liquid commercially available. So you got to find a compounding pharmacy that can provide this for them. And that might not be from miles and miles away from them. So it sometimes can become a little bit of a <laughs> hassle from that perspective. Yes. Yes. Um, I, kn- I know I'm just thinking about even mine trying, trying to get anything down is just, I have a four-year-old. <laughs> I have new appreciation for this. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> You know the disaster that it can be. <laughs> um, so where do pediatric oncology patients receive treatments? Are they- so it's most of the time major academic medical centers. Um, I know in comparison to adults, it could be an adult practice, academic medical centers. It could be community hospitals or even just a community um, oncology that might be just a completely outpatient where children, a lot of times they need inpatient and outpatient care for most of their therapies. It's not usually, most of the time, it's not something that can be done completely outpatient. Um, So they do need some sort of inpatient and outpatient care to receive their chemotherapy. Um, A lot of times because it's at major academic medical centers, and it's actually uh, information just came out in JAMA last week that worked out perfect for the talk, is um, geographical discrepancies in pediatric oncology care. So it was found that within certain race and ethnicities, especially Alaskan and Native American patients, that those patients are traveling longer distances than other races and ethnicities. And that's probably just because of where pediatric oncology centers are. So it's really driven towards the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic area of having the largest populations, as well as Tennessee, because, you know, St. Jude's. (laughs) But once you start getting into the southern states and out west, you start seeing a a drop off of centers and having less amounts of pediatric oncologists Hmm. in those areas. So we, that's where some of these patients, I remember just being at some of the centers I was at within Florida. Yes, we have, I think we have close to six to eight different centers um, for pediatric oncology, but they're in major cities. So if you have somebody in say the panhandle, Sometimes the closest area is five hours one way for them to drive. So that's something that um, comes up, unfortunately, frequently for them. Yes, that I would think could put, could put a large burden on the families um, in addition to everything else that they're yes. doing, the, the travel. And then how can pharmacy technicians, so we have a whole, a whole branch of pharmacy technicians as part of ENCODA, whom we, we love, yeah. um, included in pediatric oncology care. Yes. Yeah, so this is something that I hope grows someday for, because I think it's something that could be definitely beneficial of having more pharmacy technicians helping out in this area. Um, especially working hand in hand with maybe specialty pharmacies, because that's where a lot of this growing amount of oral medications are coming from. But even within outpatient care, having technicians help with medication histories or prior authorizations or patient assistance programs, that's something that I think is really helpful because right now that sometimes can be the whole role of what a pharmacist may be doing in outpatient. And if we had the help from that perspective, it could free up the pharmacist time to do other things such as education or um, uh, helping with 
more administrative roles such as you know building oncology plans etc from that perspective but we really want to make sure these patients are getting what they need and sometimes that's really hard because one we are using everything almost always off label <laughs> pediatric <laughs> which probably is a disclosure i guess for ce i'm talking about <laughs> <off> drugs <laughs> yes yes no but um <laughs> is that most of the time it's off-label and then it might not be the correct dosage form and we may just be going off of one case study that used use this in this patient but we know it's something that will work because it's the patient has this farm or this cytogenetic abnormality this drug targets that abnormality we know it probably will work for this patient there's a there's trials in adults but they just haven't filtered down to pediatrics yet so trying to convince <laughs> insurance companies of this sometimes can be difficult. So that might be where aspects could help is that the technicians could get the prior authorization stuff started and the pharmacist could help find the data that needs to go along with that. Or patient assistance programs, lots of times that unfortunately our patients show up with no insurance sometimes, <laughs> or they have Medicaid and getting that if getting things through quickly on that may not be possible. So showing up with a patient or having the ability to help with patient assistance programs is really beneficial for these patients of getting them one onto an insurance plan, hopefully, and then two, getting them their medications quickly while we're waiting for that insurance plan to get enacted. Or if they do have insurance, getting them to actually have a copay that's reasonable for families because just because you have insurance doesn't mean it's covered fully right unfortunately so sometimes there was many times that we were like oh great social workers like it's covered that's great it went through their insurance and then we find out the copay is like twelve hundred dollars every month and we're like that's not covered <laughs> yes yes well, no, I do know se several pharmacy technicians who excel, especially at the, the patient assistance um, aspect. So I think those are great points for our technicians. And so thank you so much for sharing all about the pediatric oncology. And just before we close out, I do have the one final fun question that we ask all of our podcast guests. Yes. So if you could have dinner with anyone living or in history, Mm. Who would it be and why? And what would be on your menu? Ooh, that's a hard <laughs> one. It's a three in one question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Who would I have dinner and why? Okay. So <laughs> this might be controversial. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. I'm from Rhode Island originally, so I'm a New England fan. So okay. it would for sure probably be Tom Brady. <laughs> That, that I think in your area, the Tampa area. The Tampa area I now live in. You know, I didn't move here just because of him, but it was a, a, a bonus. Oh. So I probably had dinner with him and what would be on the menu? Oh, it would have to be a, a Italian. I miss Italian. Good Italian food from up in the Northeast area. All right. That sounds delicious. So I think you would have, yes, you'd have a following at your dinner maybe, but. <laughs> some, some not so much, but yes, great choice. So thank you so much for joining us on the PQI podcast today. You have been so informative and we appreciate everything that you're doing for patients and for students there. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Higgins. The CE code for this episode is P-O-D-0-0-1. That's P-O-D-0-0-1. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the PQI podcast. You can find the podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.